I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm going to be talking with my good friend, Karen Grossman Gershon. We met over 20 years ago through our daughters. We met at preschool. And I don't even know if Karen knows this. I think I've told her, but she's played such a big part in my Jewish spirituality journey. Uh, For many times, she was always gracious enough to invite us for Shabbat, Jewish holidays. I remember one time there was about 30 burning menorahs in your home. I thought the house was going to burn down, but there was always music, good food, fun. And because of Karen, um, I try to have a Shabbat as often as possible. We've had a sukkah, celebrate Jewish holidays. So um, just wanted to let Karen know. I think I've let her know in the past. But thanks, Karen. You really helped with my journey. And we'll talk a little bit more about that on a trip that I went with Karen. So Karen is the CEO of Project Kesher in the U.S. and the architect of Project Kesher's International Network of Jewish Leaders. Since 1994, she has organized Jewish leadership training for over 6,000 women. That's right, 6,000 women in Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and Israel. Karen's going to provide more insight on her work with Project Kesher. And most recently, I'm really interested to hear all the things that Project Kesher is doing for the humanitarian needs of the Jewish community, women and girls in Ukraine during the war. So that's a little bit about Karen and Project Kesher. Um, We're also going to talk about how Karen got to Project Kesher and then some really interesting insight because Karen has always given me advice and I want her to share her advice for all the listeners here but what the traits she thinks people need to advocate to have meaningful philanthropy, the lessons she learned from her divorce, lessons that she's taught her children. And this is what I'm really interested in lessons that she learned from her children. And before we begin, um, Karen just told me the good news, the daughter that I met when she was three at preschool is now engaged. So Things move on in this world. Um, congratulations to Karen and Ari and and the rest of the family. So, uh, Karen, when I met you, you were working at Project Kesher. But can you kind of bring us uh, to your journey from how you started working at Project Kesher? Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. I came to Project Kesher after moving to the Midwest from New York City. I had gone to school undergrad at Cornell and came out to Chicago to attend Northwestern Law School. For the beginning of my career, I was at Katmuchin and Zavis, where I became a litigator. And then I met a woman in Lamaze class, Carol kaplan Sassen, who eventually went on to introduce me to the founder of Project Kesher, Sally Gratch of Evanston. And what I learned was that she was going to be holding a conference in 1994 in Kiev, Ukraine, 
to connect uh, Jewish women from around the world with Jews in Kiev. And all I kept thinking to myself was, who were the cool women who were going to get on an airplane to go to Kiev? Because I was busy sleeping under my desk at Cat and Muchen because I had a litigation appellate brief due and I was really overwhelmed. And the reason I ended up going to Project Kesher is as the trip got closer, I realized that I was not doing a particularly good job balancing my life and work. And when you sleep under your desk and you've got a kid at home who's just a few years old and you're not getting to work on any of the extracurriculars you had imagined, like joining boards that actually effectuated your values, I realized that if life was short, that I really had to figure out a way to put all of those things into one of the biggest aspects of my life, which was going to be my job. And so by joining Project Kesher, I was able to integrate all of my values in one place. That's a great story. And for some of the listeners here who are in corporate jobs and think you might have another calling, look up Karen. She's a great example. So Karen, can you tell us a little bit more about the work of Project Kesher? Sure. So Project Kesher, as I said, was founded by Sally Gratch. And she had envisioned it as a project to uh, rebuild Jewish life in the countries of the former Soviet Union post-communism. But as we started to develop the organization, we realized that we needed to invest in women in order to make that happen. Sally early on had gone throughout the region and discovered that when she started to organize, that men quickly became presidents of the community and women started to cook. So the decision was made that Project Kesher would focus on women's leadership. And over time, as we began to gather women, we learned that women didn't just care about the Jewish community. That was a starting point. They also cared about other women. They cared about women's health. They cared about the larger society. And so we ended up having really three core values, building Jewish life, advancing the status of women, and promoting civil society. Wow. And and what are you doing now with the war in Ukraine? Well, the war in Ukraine really required us to completely shift our direction. You can't conduct leadership training when everybody is trying to decide whether or not they're going to make it through the night through the bombing and rolling blackouts. So we immediately shifted to humanitarian support. And I'm very proud to say we're getting a lot of support out of Chicago for that work. And I'm so appreciative of all the groups that have been supporting us from your region. And um, we do a lot of the basics like other groups. We provide food, we provide generators, but we also have what we call a gendered response to the war. And so we are doing things like providing uh, hygiene products uh, because they have not got the supply chain they need these days for things like tampons. So we're providing menstrual cups, including not only to the Jewish community, but to places like the prisons in Ukraine, where the women have no access to anything at this point. And the other major initiative we're working on that's really new to us is an investment in women's small businesses. We just made our first 50 investments and under Ukrainian law, we can't give cash. So if a doctor comes to us or a dentist and tells us that she is displaced in Ukraine, but if given equipment, she will reopen her dental practice, we will help them buy dental equipment, we will help them buy sewing machines, whatever it takes to get them back to being employed, and we'll pull herself, her children out of poverty and, and potentially help her hire a few other women as well. 
So you have boots on the ground then in Ukraine for Project Kesher to help implement all this. Absolutely. We have 300 people still in the country who work with us all the time. But one of the great things about this war, and there aren't many, but one of the great things about this war has been the volunteerism of the Ukrainian people and people around the world in supporting them. So we have informal networks everywhere of people who help us identify products and deliver them. I actually flew to DC at one point to meet with about 200 some odd people working in Ukraine and met a whole group of young Jewish guys who had come out of Ukraine with their families as part of the Free Soviet Jewry movement and have now gone back to help the people they knew there. And so they have these amazing networks that work with us every day. Um, we have morning meetings and evaluate what kind of actions to take on a given day, depending on where there has been bombing or a particular humanitarian need. So these 300 volunteers are, are, are work for you are very brave. They've stayed to help. That's unbelievable. And I think the support is so appreciated. Yeah, they are brave. They're also patriotic. I think that most people, because of the history of Jews in Ukraine, did not expect that after uh, 2014 and the Maidan revolution, now uh, referred to as the Revolution of Dignity, that so many Jews would feel such a commitment to Ukraine and really want to stay and fight for its freedom. And among the things that we've been doing to respond to that is the creation of all new liturgy in Ukrainian. And in fact, we're just about to announce that for this year for Passover, we will be launching the first ever Ukrainian language Haggadah, which is being illustrated by Zoya Jakoski Nyadi, the foremost Ukrainian Jewish artist of her generation. She's had solo shows at the Israel Museum. All the music is being done by Ukrainian uh, musicians and singers, and all of it will be downloadable on Hagadot.com. And next year, we will actually formally publish it. Wow, that's that's amazing. And we're going to put the links to Project Kesher. You know, if you feel moved to donate, it'll all be on there. But to really see the work, and I was fortunate enough in, I think it was about 2002, 2003, and very few people can say no to Karen. And I remember Karen coming up to me and said she was doing this trip down the Volga, a boat trip, and we were going to be bringing Torahs from synagogues that had closed in New York and New Jersey, bring them there, meet with the Jewish community. And I thought, you know, this might be a fun trip for my mom. And I was working 24-7. I called my mom. I said, do you want to go on a trip with me? She didn't even ask what it was. She said yes. Uh, so we're on the Volga, on this boat. Debbie Friedman was on the boat. We were singing. Uh, Karen was half the people from Ukraine or former Soviet Union, and half were from the States, correct? It was about 150 Americans and about 100 people from the region. And it was quite an adventure. Oh, yes. So we walk in. My mom says, I thought we had a double and the beds were on the wall. So if you put the beds down, you couldn't walk. The shower was a hose from the sink and everyone brought a carry on. But my mom, she had this huge luggage. She had toilet paper. She had matches. She had tweezers. She had things to fix glasses. She had band-aids. She had everything. So at the end, there was a little skit and someone came out with all the luggage to make fun of her. My mom, who's kind of quiet, got up and said, 
You came to the well when you needed it. No more jokes about my suitcase. And my mom uh, also spoke Yiddish. And we had dinner with some people there that spoke Yiddish. So I firsthand got to see the work. And we marched those Torahs where in, in the square. I don't know if you could do that today. But to have Debbie Friedman singing and marching the Torahs, I will never forget that trip. But I got to see firsthand. So it was unbelievable. It was actually a very, very interesting moment where I had um, moved to Torah. I believe it was out of Evanston. And I had asked the police department if we could march the Torah through the streets of Evanston. And we were turned down at that time. And then we got to Russia and they were able to accompany us all the way through the streets with the Torahs. And it was pretty shocking to us that they could do that. And I, it, it certainly wasn't because it was a more democratic country. It certainly wasn't. But in, in some ways, there was a safety that they were able to provide us in that moment. But that was quite a trip. We didn't really realize that it was going to be the white nights. And so we were able to program 24-7. We were up all hours uh, having a great time together. I think we had five women rabbis, five Torahs, and Debbie Friedman doing the music. And Silver. Oh, Julie Silver. Julie Silver. And they would write original too. music for us. It was just beautiful. I grew up conservative. And when I got bat mitzvah, I never had read from the Torah, had an aliyah, because in those days you had a Friday night. And my first aliyah was on the boat at Project Hesher. So I'll never forget that. And that's a, if you're not Jewish, that's a special moment in your life when you have it. So and I still have a lot of memories from that trip. So, Karen, you have been such a successful leader for philanthropy and doing a lot of advocating. So what is like one of the biggest traits you think makes a great CEO for a philanthropic organization? Well, I had the privilege of being trained by Kim Klein at the Chicago Foundation for Women in how to make an ask. And the most important thing she told me was to be fearless because you're not actually asking for yourself. You are asking for a mission that you care about. And money only has the meaning we attach to it. And if people have money and they don't effectuate their worldview with it, it is a loss. And so if you come to people from a nonprofit and tell them that their money has the ability to be life-changing, right now in Ukraine, it has the ability to save lives. In other parts of the world, it has the ability to ensure access to reproductive health. But money is power if the right person helps you invest it. And not every person is going to run a nonprofit or be that close to the grassroots. So I feel this enormous privilege to work so closely with the activists that when people give us the privilege of using their money, we have the ability to know exactly how it is used. So I think that knowing that you can ask and make a change in the world is really quite the gift of being the CEO of a nonprofit. And that brings back memory, a lesson um, from my dad. He started a bank and we were selling stock for the new bank and we went door to door and people would say no. And I'd be like, aren't you upset about the no's? He says no, because that means there'll be a yes around the corner. You need a certain amount of no's. And he always taught me the worst they'll say is no. You just got to ask. And sometimes you're surprised on the people that say yes, and you're surprised on the people that say no. But I, I agree with that. You just got to ask. And really, 
an investment in Project Kesher or any organization. I always say I can't tell you if your investment's going to go up or down on any given day, but I know if you believe in what you're giving charity-wise, that investment will help a lot of people. And it also feels good for yourself. I so appreciate your father's philosophy. Kim Klein used to say, if you don't get any no's, you're not asking enough people. Exactly. And if they say no to you, they're not saying no to you. They're saying no because their values don't align. And so if they don't want to give to the people of Ukraine or support Jewish life there, that may not be their value. And that has to be okay with you as well. You shouldn't take it personally. Exactly. And he used to always say, it's not no, it's not now. Because sometimes that first ask, you get nothing, but then you continue to show what you're doing and people change. I, I know you you and I talked about this when this war came out. You got a lot of support and people were looking for organizations to contribute. And you were on the top of the list because you didn't just decide to help women in Ukraine. You've been doing it since 1994. Correct. Okay, so now, Karen, because you're always so good with advice, I'd like you to share some lessons. So lessons you learned from your divorce. The first lesson I learned from my divorce is that it is really important to know what your goals are in your divorce. For me, my primary goal was to ensure that my children left the divorce as whole as possible. And I think that taking the high road is always the way to go for me, at least in my divorce and understanding what my financial uh, vision was moving forward. For instance, I was fortunate that I made a good income and I was much more concerned with the concept that my children would have what they would need to complete college. And also that I would be able to move towards retirement more whole. And so again, knowing that those were my priorities made my divorce much easier. The other thing that I learned was uh, during dating during my divorce, people always wanted to fix me up. And I found it very, very funny that they would often say to me, he runs a hedge fund. You'll be so amazed. He, He manages billions of dollars. And then I would meet this person and I had nothing in common with them. And at the end, I would always say to them, so what do you do for philanthropy? And I was never (laughs) surprised to find out from several of them that they did very little. And I remember one particular day that was, was ending and the guy was trying to figure out if I was gonna go out with him again, which, and the answer was no. But he asked, you know, what else I wished I had known? And I said, I'd love to know what you give to. And he says to me, give to, I'm still in acquisition. I'm still acquiring assets. And I said to him, you know what? You're almost 60 years old. You should have a sense of what your philanthropy should be. And the most meaningful thing that happened is months later, I get a picture of him from Israel where he says to me, I just made my first $100,000 gift and joined a board. He said, your investment in me wasn't a complete waste of time. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that's really, that's really interesting to me. When I finally met my partner, Ed, I really valued that he takes his philanthropy very seriously and he takes his politics very seriously and he invests in both of them. And I think that's one of the things that attracted to me, to him the most. Yeah, and I I talk a lot about this and especially in, in my book, Maximize Your Return on Life is that we all have core values and usually it's about five to seven of them. 
And one of mine is philanthropy and obviously one of yours is, and you really need to share it with a significant other. And if you don't have the same values at some point, things are, are going to explode. Maybe you'll share them and you'll have a positive response like Karen, but your core values in your partner and a job and almost every life decision is so, so important. So what did you teach your children, Karen? I'm excited to hear about this. So one of the lessons that I've taught my children is that your job cannot be just something you do eight hours a day and walk away from. And in this generation, I hear more all the time that they do not want to be bound by jobs that are overwhelming in their lives, that they see it as a place that they have to make an income, that it is something that they must do, but it's not something that they want to define their lives. And I had a very serious conversation with my partner's child recently when they explained to me that they really didn't particularly care what their job was going to be because they knew that they could have a real life outside of their job. And I was really moved when their sister jumped into the conversation and, and, and spoke about the fact that there are weeks that you spend more time at your job than you do with your significant other. And so I've always said to my children that your job has to be two things. One, it has to make you self-sufficient. That is really a goal. I, I don't have a standard. They don't have to live the same lifestyle that I did, but they do need to at some point aspire for self-sufficiency. But then they need to understand that somehow their job is meaningful. It's meaningful because it provides an income to their family, or it's meaningful be also because it does something important in the world. It's a service that is needed. And so I really, I really reject the concept in this generation that jobs are meaningless because anything you spend that much time on in your life should give some meaning to your life. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I've been very fortunate that I, I don't feel like I work. And hopefully if you find a job that you're passionate about, Yes, there's days, there's stress, there's things that happen. But, you know, I wake up every day really excited. And I know Karen does. And I hope that people will listen to this because it may take time to find that right fit or the right job. But I do believe self-sufficiency and one of my keys to financial happiness is living within your means. So once you have that income, just live within your means and it don't have to keep up with your parents, with your friends, with your cousin, be true to your own self, your own values, and live within your means. So that's a great lesson you taught your children. You told me the other day that there's some lessons that you've learned from your children, and, and they are great children. I know all three of them. And so I want to hear what you're learning. And they're all different. They're all different, pursuing different careers, but they're they're absolutely wonderful. So what have they taught you, Karen? Well, when I was a young lawyer and I would be told, you know, what my salary was or what my bonus was, my response was always like, thank you. Thank you so much for paying me and for giving me a bonus. And what I've learned from this generation is that you really need to advocate for yourself, particularly young women. And one of the things that I have seen is both my, my daughter-in-law and some of her friends who have coached my daughters, that when you are given an offer, there's almost always money still on the table. And while they may not always be able to pay you more in a salary, they may be able to pay you more in a signing bonus or in a moving bonus 
or something else. And what I've seen is my daughters really step forward and go for jobs they wanted, even when it was complicated. I mean, one of my daughters left a great job in Manhattan to move to Ohio during COVID, and she negotiated her salary and her, her transfer there with so much assertiveness that I was just really, really impressed. It would never have occurred to me as a young lawyer or a young professional that there was room for this type of negotiation. And now I started to realize that it's critical if they're hiring you to be like a professor at a business school, like my middle child or a young finance professional, they expect you to advocate. They expect you to understand finances. If you can't even advocate for yourself, how will you do your job effectively? And so I've really grown to admire uh, that. And I am hopeful that there will be less discrepancies between male and female salaries and benefits as more young women learn how to be advocates for themselves. And definitely, it's not just always the money. It might be a leadership role. It might be changing divisions. And, you know, Karen, you brought back memories. I mean, I think we kind of grew up that let's just be good girls. Let's work really hard. Let's do a good job. They're going to see what a great job we're doing and they're just going to reward us. But I do think this next generation, especially women, you have to be proactive and men too. I mean, everyone out there, you have to do a good job, but be proactive with your career because that's where you're going to be spending a lot of time. So Karen, valuable lessons. I have always, always admired the work that you do and the growth the Project Kesher. I mean, you used to have an office in Evanston. Now you, the headquarters are, are in New York. The organization has just grown under your leadership. And there's so much more we could talk about. But again, we'll put all the links. But thank you for doing all you're doing for the women, especially during this war, because we really don't know what's it like over there. And do you want to just end us with some happy story or something that that you guys did in Ukraine that really will bring bring a smile to our faces? I think that is giving me the, what is giving me the greatest pleasure right now are the small business loans that we are making and they're not even loans, they're outright grants. And what we're finding is that, you know, we would get a call from a woman with seven children and who had moved across country with um, her farm animals, her her cows actually, but she can't upsell her product because she no longer had cheese making equipment and we were able to provide it. Or another woman in Bucha, which was one of the scenes of some of the greatest horrors in Ukraine, and she immediately returned and reopened her company where she was making beeswax products. And we bought the first 300 lip glosses from her so that she would immediately have a supply chain and be able to sell as well. And so I think that there is a real dignity to the people of Ukraine and their desire not just to take international aid, but to quickly, quickly get back to being their own people and their own self-sufficient selves. That's great. And Karen, the last question, how do you maximize your return on life outside of your work? I know that maximizes your return on life. I am very, very blessed by my family and personal relationships. I have a wonderful partner and I really feel, feel so fortunate to have uh, living parents and um, three great kids and partners. 
So I think for me, it is all about the relationships and I feel blessed to have them. And I feel blessed to have yours, Sherry. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And I'm blessed to have your friendship. But I know Karen's parents, uh, her mom actually went on the boat with us also. So I got to know her pretty well, but I've known her parents for many, many years. And they are, I see where Karen gets all her, her oomph and her gumption. They're, they're just great, great people. So thank you, Karen, for being on the podcast. I learned a little bit more. And again, I just admire everything you're doing. But if you'd like to learn more how you can maximize your return on life, please see our website at rrcapital.com. We'd be happy to help you. I also have my own website at sherrygrecorikus.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to it and tell your friends. So thanks, Karen. I hope to see you soon in Chicago. I think we saw each other not too long ago. Uh, we, we always enjoy the same type of food and always have a good time. So thanks, Karen. Thank you.